Last night I went to a uh, Griffins hockey game and did that because uh, my, the, well, the Thorn Apple uh, Kellogg Middle School, the band was playing the uh, national anthem for the hockey game. And so my son is in the band, he plays trombone. So I went to, to hear uh, middle schoolers play and to, to watch hockey. So while I was there, I got some, I, I think, good ideas for the, for the church and for services that we can do. Maybe um, spice things up a little bit. So I think sometime during the sermon, we're going to um, shoot some t-shirts into the audience. <laughs> so when you see the, the deacons come out with the t-shirt cannons, uh, just nothing to be worried about. You can be excited about that. And I thought we could, maybe between sermon points too, we'll take a little break after the first sermon point, and we'll get the mascots out here and uh, do kind of the mascot race. I figured to have it more church appropriate, we'll have people in Bible costumes, and we'll race like the ESV versus the King James and the NIV and see, see who wins. Uh, seriously though, of course, we're not going to do any of those uh, things but the reason I bring that up, because it just it got me thinking a little bit. I had to drop Eric off and then sit and wait for a while for the, for the game to start. And they have a lot of preliminaries, things going on, waiting quite a while. And then you get to a point where, okay, we're doing the national anthem. And you know when it's the national anthem time at a sporting event, this, it's going to start. This is, this is go time for this. And in a way, the sermon series that we're doing on the book of Luke, getting into the life of Christ. We've been in this several weeks. And everything from uh, before Jesus was even conceived in his, his childhood. And now we're finally at the place where it's, this is go time. Jesus' baptism is what we're going to cover here today. And in each of the Gospels, this is the beginning of his public ministry. Okay, so this is kind of like hitting the national anthem. It's, it's time to begin here. In fact, even in two of the Gospels, in Mark and in John, it basically starts with Jesus' baptism. This is the beginning of his public life. So even if you've uh, missed the earlier uh, sermons in this series, I'm glad that you're here now, and I hope you keep coming back, because this is uh, when it really begins with Jesus, his public ministry, and and getting into that. You know, hockey games, they're not very high scoring games. There is a lot of sitting around and waiting between points. It's kind of like my sermons. Uh, But here comes the first point. We're going to get into this. Okay, first point. At his baptism, Jesus is publicly declared truly to be the Son of God. So we're going to be doing all the rest of chapter 3 today. And we're going to start here. First point. Verses 21 and 22 reads, Luke chapter 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Oh, excuse me, i got to back up a little bit. 21, sorry about this. Verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. So this is the baptism account of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's recorded in each of the four Gospels. And there's a few things that we can notice from this. One is that the baptism account is actually fairly brief here in the Gospel of Luke. So, you compare this to um, 
the book of Matthew, you have Matthew 3 and also John 1. It's, uh, there's more details in each of those uh, Gospels. And we may pay note to that a little bit, but we're going to stick with what's written here in the book of Luke and focus on that. And I want to just ask three questions for this section. One, why did Jesus get baptized? What was the point of this? Because we saw last week that it said that this baptism that John the Baptist was doing was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's what it says in verse 3. And if we know for a fact that Jesus was sinless, what is he doing getting baptized? A baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sin. What did Jesus have to repent about? What forgiveness did Jesus need? So that's the first question we can ask. And then when we look at this, I want to think a little bit of there's this voice that comes from heaven, from God the Father. And what does it say and what does that mean? And then what's this deal with the, with the dove that descends? And what are some things that we can draw from that? So the first question, why did Jesus get baptized when he was sinless? And I think there's a clue from that when we look at, as I mentioned, there's a little more detail that are given in uh, John and in Matthew. And we don't have to turn to that right now. If you can look at that at a different time if you would like. But in uh, the Gospel of John, that's where we know that when Jesus came, John the Baptist saw him coming and pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it gives us indication from that John the Baptist realized who was coming here. And this is the one that was going to be the ultimate sacrifice that's going to take away the sins of everyone. Everyone that puts their trust in Jesus Christ as, as their Savior. And we also know when we look at the Gospel of Matthew that when Jesus comes, John at first says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You are greater than me. You should be baptizing me. But then Jesus says to him, he says, he tells him to go along, please do this. He says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I think this gives us an idea of what Jesus was doing. Jesus who didn't need to repent, who didn't need forgiveness, that he was doing this, this was an act of solidarity with the rest of the human race. He was identifying with us because we need repentance. We have sinned. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know I have sinned. And I know you have sinned because the Bible says that you have. And you know in your heart that you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, we, we deserve God's wrath and we need forgiveness. And so Jesus was doing this to identify with us, to those that he was going to take our place. In Isaiah 53.12, this prophecy 700 years ago of the Messiah says that he would be numbered with the transgressors. So we are the ones that have transgressed. He was sinless, but he came to be counted with us, to be identified with us, so he could be not just die on the cross in our place, but I think everything that he did in his life, he was doing in our place. So the perfect life that he did to fulfill all righteousness for us because we could not fulfill God's law. We don't. We have broken that. And once you've broken it, there's no way to fulfill it. It's, it's done. It's, it's been broken. But Jesus, 
at this point, he was still completely sinless. He had never sinned. But he was doing this. He was repenting on our behalf. This was a, it was just a substitutionary repentance. He was being baptized on our behalf. I mean, think of this. He, he died in our place. And I think what he was doing this, he was also he was, he was repenting in our place. We are called to repent. We're called to turn from our sins, turn to Him. And even that we do not do perfectly. But through Christ, we have one that is even in that for us. And we're still called to turn and put our faith in, in Christ. But He lived the perfect life for us. And I think that's part of what was going on. Is he was identifying with sinners. And then you have this voice from heaven, which we know this is God the Father talking because He declares Him to be His Son. And He says... There's the, that it says the heavens were opened. I have to imagine what this looks like if it was like the clouds were ripped in half and light coming down. I don't know exactly what this would have looked like. I assume it was very dramatic. And it says, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So you have here God the Father giving His, uh, his approval to His Son. So one, He's saying that he is, he is His Son. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That he's always been God. He's always been God's Son, and God the Father has always been his Father. So we shouldn't understand this as some kind of adoption that's happening right here. Because Jesus is not an adopted Son. He's always been the Son of God. That's an eternal thing. But Jesus is, the, the Father is saying this about Jesus to make this apparent for everyone so that we know this, to verify this, with a, a big booming voice coming out of heaven saying this. And again, saying that he's his beloved son, the love that God has for the son that he gave to come to this earth to eventually to die on the cross for our sins. And with him he is well pleased because Jesus had not sinned. Jesus was the perfect son of God. And then, if there's any doubt about who this voice is talking about, because there was multitudes there that had come to be baptized by uh, John the Baptist. And just so if, in case anyone was confused or thinking, is it about me? Well, the God basically uh, points a finger at Jesus by having the Holy Spirit depend, descend upon him. And it says, like a dove. So we don't know exactly what this means. It doesn't say necessarily that this was a dove. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. But it, whether it took the form of a dove or it's some kind of uh, presence or light or something that looked... Maybe a dove was the best way they could describe this coming down and landing right on Jesus. So everyone knew who this was about. And so basically tagged Jesus pointing and saying, this is the one. And through this, when we look at the baptism, there's a few things we can notice. You do see here, you see the whole Trinity being present. That we believe in one God, but one God that is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct persons. We believe in three distinct persons, but one God. That God is one being, three persons. So you see the the Father in the voice from heaven. He's speaking down. You see the Son of God, Jesus, who's there. He's being baptized. And you see the Holy Spirit that is uh, descending in the form of the, the dove coming upon Jesus. So you see here a very vivid picture of the three-in-one 
Christian God that we worship, that the Bible presents to us, being being made very clear for us. And I think also what's going on here is this is Jesus is being anointed. I mean, he was the Christ, the Messiah. And that term, it means anointed one. And in the same way as in the Old Testament, they would anoint the kings. And they would use that with, with oil to anoint them. Jesus was being anointed with the Holy Spirit to show that this is the long-awaited Messiah, that he's finally come. And as we said, this was the start of Jesus' ministry with this public accreditation that this is the Messiah. Here he is. Now, we had a baptism this morning. And when Tim was baptized, did you notice what was missing? Uh, There was no voice from heaven. I mean, the clouds do not rip asunder. And no voice from heaven saying, you know, behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit did not descend in the form of a dove you know, and, and rest upon uh, Tim. When that happened to Jesus, that was unusual. I mean, there were other people being, many other being baptized by John at this time, and that didn't happen to them. This was an unusual thing. And this was unusual on purpose. It was to show that Jesus was very, very special. And yeah, you know, with technology today, we could have, we could have faked some of that. You know, we could use the PA system uh, to, to boom in, you know, a voice. We could have done something with a projector system or spotlights to fake some kind of, you know, glowing dove to come down. And we didn't do that because that would be wrong on so many levels. But I want you to stop and think about this. And let this sink in. That when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have done that already, think about what happened when you trusted Jesus. There were several things that happened to you. Things that were invisible, but they were true. You realize that when, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, that the Bible says that you are adopted as His Son. That you are literally and legally adopted as as God the Father's Son, and therefore as Jesus' adopted brother. There's many places in Scripture that talk about this. One, I'll just read it to you, Galatians 4, 4-7. And we've read this before. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, because He had to accomplish the law in our place, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So no, we are, we are not eternal sons like Jesus is, but let that sink in. That, that privilege and how amazing that is that the Bible declares that if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that moment you were adopted as God's, as God's son. And that's true of the ladies as well too. We might be tempted to say sons and daughters, but the reason that it says son for everyone is that the sons were the heirs. 
And no matter if you are a man or a woman, you are made an heir of God through Jesus Christ. And that's equal whether you are a man or a woman. And at that time, that through Jesus Christ, because you are joined to Him, because when you trust... When you are joined to him, that God looks down on you and is able to look at you and say, With you I am well pleased. Not because of our own perfection, but because we have a substitute that we have accepted. That Jesus Christ lived that perfect life in our place, fulfilling all righteousness for us, that he paid our penalty for us, and that with him we're joined to him, we, we die with him, we rise with him. And that through him, God is able to look at us and say, well pleased. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We're justified in him, declared righteous by the God of the universe. And that means not just that you've never sinned in his eyes, but he looks at you and declares to you that you have the righteousness of Christ legally given to you because of the work of the substitute, what Jesus did on the cross for you. And the third thing, Jesus was declared to be Son of God, the Father was well pleased with Him, and the Holy Spirit descended. And at the moment that you believed, the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son into your heart. He didn't come to anoint you as the Messiah. No, as a, He didn't come to anoint you as Christ, but He came to permanently indwell you with the Spirit of Christ living in you as a follower of Christ. This didn't happen at your your water baptism, but it did truly happen at the moment that you believed. At the moment at that moment you were spiritually baptized, you were immersed in by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, so that all these things are true for you because of God's promise, promises and what Jesus did in your place. And that's what water baptism just represents. It is a visible picture of this invisible reality that you can't see. Those things are true if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. And I hope that you have. If you have not yet, I plead with you that you would. So we see that. We see a second point here. We see this after... Jesus is baptized. It gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is our second and last point. In his genealogy, Jesus is, is accredited truly to be the Son of Man. I think it's interesting. The first section here, you know, God says, Behold, you are my Son. He's the Son of God. And then here it gives accreditation that he is, He's not just the Son of God. He is. But He's also an authentic human being. And he has a human lineage. So he's both uh, God and he is fully God and fully man. Now, probably not too many of you get, get way excited when it's time to look at the genealogies in Scripture. Okay? But, you know, if in many cultures, this would be, and in times past, this would be time people would be paying attention. Because they cared a lot more than we do today about where they're rooted in and family history, and ancestry. And so these are important. They're in Scripture for a reason. And everything that is in Scripture is for a reason. Now, it may be tough to do devotions on just a little bit of this, especially if it's two people that aren't really mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. 
um, you know, the um, son of Melchi, son of Adai. But everything is in here because it links Jesus all the way back to King David, who he, Jesus came to fulfill the promises given to David, all the way back to Abraham, fulfilling the promises given to Abraham. And in Luke's Gospel, all the way back to Adam, being created by God himself. So let me read just a, a little bit of this. It says, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Madhat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, and, and it goes on. I'm not going to read all that. I hope you have your scripture open so you can take a look at this. We're in, uh, in Luke chapter 3 here. Uh, but it would, it would take several minutes to read. There's 77 generations that are given here. If you, 76 human, 77 if you include all the way back to Adam being the son of God. But there's a few things we can, we can notice here. Well, first, before we even get into that, it says that Jesus is about 30 when he began his ministry. I think it's uh, helpful to realize that it actually says he was about 30. It doesn't say he was 30 on the dot. Because, in fact, if Jesus was born, let's say, a year or so before Herod the Great died, and Herod the Great died in about 4 B.C., and if the events in Luke 3 took place, as it said, in the 15th year of Tiberius, his reign, and if that was 29 A.D., that would actually make Jesus about 33 years old at this point, give or take a year. So sometimes we have that Jesus was exactly 30, but it says, it says about 30, and 33, well, that, that, that fits that. And if, you, if you're trying to do the math on that, you have to remember there's no year zero, so you have to account for that as well. So that still fits for about 30. And, and if you don't think it does, uh, just a reminder, there's, there's some of you uh, that were in here that were still claiming to be about 30 when you were 39. Okay. <laughs> so he was still in his early 30s when this, when this took place. The genealog- genealogical records, they would have been kept in the temple. And these were public things. People could go check these out. Now, the temple was destroyed by the Romans in about 70 A.D., so we don't have those anymore. But thankfully, they're written down for us in Scripture. Now, here's the thing. If you take a look at the genealogy in Luke, there's another genealogy given in the book of Matthew. And I hope you take a look at that sometime and compare these two. I want to talk about a few things. And one is some people look at these and they might get worried that there seems to be some contradictions. And there really are some differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Now, some of these are just more um, surface, the way that it's being presented. One thing that's a little bit different is Luke starts with Jesus and works backwards in time. So it says, Jesus, he's the son, and it says, as was supposed, of Joseph. Because remember, Joseph, it was his legal father, but... Jesus was born of the virgin birth. And so he wasn't his, his biological dad. So, but, it, but legally he was. And then it goes back to the son of Heli, and it, it works backwards. Whereas if you read in Matthew's gospel, it starts with Abraham. It doesn't go all the way back to Adam. It starts with Abraham and then goes, goes forward. And maybe part of a reason for that too is that uh, 
Matthew's gospel tends to focus a lot more on the Jewish people and present Jesus as their Messiah. There's more of a focus there. And so it makes sense to start with Abraham, uh, who would be the, the Jewish people look to him as their, their forefather, that things started with him, the promises made to him. Where it's neat that Luke also goes to Abraham, but then goes all the way back to Adam. And Luke's gospel has more of a, a universal picture. That yes, Jesus is the Savior for the, for the Jewish people. But he's the Savior for everyone. Jews and Gentiles. Uh, all nationalities. Everyone that that's, has sprung from Adam. Jesus came to save us all. So that's another difference. But then one of the things, and there's some other differences too. Matthew, um, Matthew includes several women in it, uh, where Luke doesn't, which is a little bit surprising because Luke... Um, has given a lot of focus to women so far. So it's definitely not because he's uh, against women, but it's just an interesting thing. There's lots of people in the genealogy that we know who they are, kings of Israel, important people. There's a lot of nobodies as well. And it can be a reminder and encouragement to us too that some of these people, that their name is only listed ever here. God had an important role for them, and they may have had no clue about this at the time that they lived, but that they were this link, that it was going to be the Messiah that was coming from them. And there may be things in your life where you don't realize your importance and what God is doing through you, but God has a plan and God is at work. But one of the big differences is you take a look at um, when you compare these. For example, um, in Luke that we're in, it goes from Jesus and it works its way backwards and it says, okay, then his, his father was Joseph and it says, as was supposed. Then it goes back to, uh, to Heli, to uh, Matat. That's quite the name, Matat. So, by the way, there's some, uh, you know, if you're looking for kids' names ideas, <laughs> there's all kinds of ones here that are not overused. Pick a number between 1 and 77 and just go through the list and whatever it is, take it. Okay, so you have a kid named Matt Hat. And back to Levi, Melchi. And then, I don't have these listed, there's, uh, say, 35 more that are in until you get back up to, to Nathan. That's a good name, by the way. <laughs> and then David, King David. Now, that seems, it seems all good, but when you look at Matthew's gospel, it might throw you for a little bit of a loop, because there it says, okay, Jesus, okay, we got that. Joseph, Joseph was his, his father, we get that. And then it lists, oh, Jacob. Hey, wait a second here, what's, okay, you know, sometimes people have different names, maybe that's what's going on, but well, wait a second, because you have other names that are just, uh, that, that don't fit here as well. Um, so we have, uh, it's uh, Matan, and then, for him, Eliezer, was it Elud? Okay, and then you have 20 more, and then Solomon, and then David. So there are some differences here. And by the way, this, the, the early church obviously knew about this. It didn't overly concern them. But for us, we might say, well, is this, is this, a, is this errors? Is this mistakes? And so... From uh, Joseph, basically to David, there's two basically different genealogies that are, that are given there. After that point, it basically syncs up. 
and after that, it, it lines up the same. In fact, you go from um, after uh, David, it talks about David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz. If you were here when we did the book of Ruth, you'd recognize those names and how they trust down from Boaz, who's in the book of Ruth, and his uh, descendant was uh, King David. But there's a few different uh, possibilities about what's going on here. So in this section, between uh, David and, uh, and Joseph, it's basically all different names. Now, there's two exceptions. Um, Shealtai and Zerubbabel are both listed together in both of these, and they were, uh, they were kings of Judah. But I think that it's actually two different, um, two different people. I mean, sometimes you had a famous person, and some of these names were used by more than one person. I mean, there's Joseph that is in the book of Genesis, and there's Joseph that's Jesus's, you know, Joseph and Mary, Jesus's parents. And even in the book of Genesis, Joseph's father was Jacob, and here in the Matthew account, it's, it's Jacob. So they're, they're different, Joseph and Jacob, but they kind of did the same order as the famous order. So I think it's two different lines that are being traced here. So I'll give you two basic major theories as far as what's going on. One major theory is that what the book of Matthew is doing is that he's giving the genealogy through Joseph. That that would be Jesus' legal genealogy. Okay? Because Joseph wasn't his biological father because of the virgin birth, but legally, I mean, Jesus came to be, to be the king, and he inherited this, and this would have gone legally through the line of David from their sons through, through Solomon, who was king, all the way down uh, to, to Joseph, and then to Jesus Christ. And then in that theory, then, what you have in Luke would be tracing the genealogy through Mary. That possibly this is uh, Jesus' biological th- um, ancestry through Mary. And that could be what's going on. Now, let me say a few things. There's quite a few more in Matthew than there is, or excuse me, quite a few more in Luke than in Matthew. We do know that in some of these genealogies, sometimes they would skip some. And that really, that's not an error at all because in, uh, in the scriptures, when it says son of or father of, that could mean grandson, that could mean great-grandson. Uh, we, know, we know for sure that Matthew skipped some of the kings. He was putting everything in groups of 14. So for his purposes, he was uh, creating these groups of 14. And so that could be why there's uh, many more in Luke. And if you uh, take the years, David was about 1,000 years before Jesus. Um, that would give you, you know, about 23 years you know, per uh, generation, which seems, on average, that would be about right. So when he says son or, or father, yeah, it could just mean descendant or ancestor. Okay, so it's okay if, they, if some are, are skipped. That's not an error. In fact, remember, some people would say, um, in Jesus' time, our father Abraham. Okay, well, Abraham's not your, your immediate father. That was 2,000 years ago. So that's one thing to just keep in mind as you, as you look at this. But some people say, what could have happened? Let's say Heli was Mary's father, then, uh, or excuse me, um, yeah, if Heli was Mary's father, and if Heli just had daughters, then what could have happened is that when Joseph married Mary, that Heli could have adopted uh, Joseph as his heir, 
And that's partly why it presents this as uh, Joseph being uh, the father um, of Christ here and tracing the genealogy. Another possibility, and we don't know for sure how this works out. Uh, Scholars look at this and they debate. Other scholars are not convinced that we can get away from the fact that Luke's genealogy seems to also give the genealogy through Joseph um, and not Mary. But they say maybe this has something to do with Leverite marriage. That again, if you were here for the book of Ruth, we saw that in the Old Testament, if a man died without uh, heirs, that a, uh, without an heir, a male heir, that a brother, a close relative, was supposed to marry the widow and to have uh, children for the deceased brother or relative so that those children could receive uh, the deceased person's inheritance. And so there's different theories about how that could work out. Okay, and it gets complicated. Maybe another way to put this in kind of terms we would understand, uh, it's not exactly like this, but imagine that you're adopted. If you're adopted, you could trace your genealogy two different ways. You could trace it through your uh, adopted parents, or you could trace it back through your biological parents. So basically, one way or another, between Matthew and between Luke, we have all the bases covered. That we're giving it presented that Jesus both both legally and possibly biologically, and no matter how we look at this, that he is authenticated to be uh, the heir of David, because both of these trace back to him. And we also saw that it goes all the way back to Adam. This does demonstrate that the Bible teaches that there was a literal Adam. He was just like there was a literal David and all these people. He was a literal man that walked this earth. And he was given headship over us. And he was called to live this perfect life, to obey God. And he didn't. That he sinned along with Eve, and it plunged the human race into ruin. And because of that sin, has been passed down to all of us. And so Luke's Gospel not only is a point back to him, but it also lets us know that, I think it's interesting, why is, why is the genealogy right here? Why is it not at the beginning? Of Luke's gospel. It's giving us the credentials of Jesus, but look at what happens right next. Right after this is the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus is going to go out to the wilderness. And Jesus, he's been living 30 years perfect, but now he's going to be tempted to see if he sins. And I think it's interesting. It leaves us with thinking about Adam, the one that he failed the test right off the bat and plunged us into sin. And that all of us We come into this life as descendants of Adam and we're sinners because of him. But Jesus, the second Adam, was sent to succeed where the first Adam failed. Jesus had already lived 30-some perfect years, but these next three years would be the most important and trying years of his life. Because think of it, one sin and his mission was over. One sin and he could not save us. Because the Savior had to be perfect. Why did God become a man? Why did He come to this world? Jesus had to come to this world, and the Messiah had to be fully God and fully human. He had to be fully God in order for His sacrifice to be worth enough to save all of us. A mere man couldn't do that. And he had to be fully human 
so that he could die for humanity, for anyone that will put their trust in him. And that's what he did, and that's who he was. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you praise. We thank you that you are able to be our Savior because you are both truly God and truly human being. Lord God, Jesus was a perfect Son of God who identified with us, with sinful humanity, and came to take our place. And that He did what, what we fail, what Adam failed. We have not lived perfect lives. We have sinned, we have rebelled. And so we thank You that You sent a Savior that was perfect where we are not. And He's able to save us by being our substitute. So we give You praise. And we give You thanks. And I pray that anyone here that has not trusted Christ would do so, realizing that He came to save them. We give you praise. In the name of Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, we pray. Amen.